Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So this summer, we are spending some time in the Old Testament, in different books of the Old Testament. And we are starting out uh, in this first part. This is the last one in our series in the book of Judges. We had a couple weeks off. And so from this series, we celebrated a few baptisms a couple weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. And then we had the holiday weekend away. And so now we're returning back into the story, this time ending with our last judge who's recorded in this book, the story of Samson. Now, when our kids were growing up, we had a minivan that had a... uh, VCR or DVD thing, whatever, in the back. And so we had the Veggie Tales. Has anyone heard the Veggie Tales? Samson, Minnesota Cuke? Okay. So I've listened to the Veggie Tales version of Samson a million times, and they would summarize it like Samson's the strong man in the Bible. If you read through the full story of Samson now, you might think of Samson a little bit more like a Marvel character. He reminds me of Thor with his long hair and his like superhuman strength. And so if we're honest and we actually read through this whole story, you guys, it's a really messed up story. And I've been thinking this week a lot about stories in the Bible, as one does when one decided months ago that we should teach on the book of Judges, and then I had to figure out how to actually teach these weird stories. I mean, haven't they been strange? And so I've been thinking about stories a lot this week. If you're familiar with the Bible, I want you to think for a couple minutes about parables. If you're not familiar with the Bible, no problem, super quick. In the Gospels, these are the stories in the beginning of the New Testament where it's the... conveys the life and the teaching of Jesus during his earthly ministry, okay? Those are the Gospels. If you're new to the Bible, I recommend you go straight to the Gospels first, okay? You can read Genesis 1 and 2, but then just just leave that for a second and go to the Gospel of Matthew and start reading there. The Bible is a confusing book, but the Jesus part is a really good place to start. Anyway, Jesus often taught with lifelike stories that were fictional, but were lifelike for that audience, and they were meant to communicate a deeper spiritual truth. Those stories are called parables. And they were lifelike to the original audiences. They had things to do with like vineyard owners or a friend borrowing bread or field hands. So sometimes when I read a parable, I can find myself thinking, am I supposed to be like the shrewd manager or like definitely not like the shrewd manager. I have a 50-50 shot. Which one is right in these teaching stories? And don't worry if you get it wrong at first, but that's how we engage with a story like a parable. There was once this person and you're sitting there thinking, which is the right way to be? Our tendency can be when we go to the Old Testament to treat stories like these judges stories in a similar way. Am I supposed to be like Gideon or definitely not like Gideon? And we're all left kind of going like this. I have no idea because we're not meant to engage with these stories in the same way as, for example, a parable. And we can understand that because if we go to a bookstore now and I hand you a fairy tale versus a historical fiction versus a biography, you will automatically expect different things and allow different things from those different 
different books in how they communicate to you. And the same is true on why we're even in this book of Judges, because some of the Old Testament stories, the historical books, are really hard to know what to do with. And so we want to wrestle with these on their own terms, because these are still the holy inspired word of God. They are relevant and important to teach us and refine our lives today. But when we read them, they're kind of wacky and a little bit hard to understand. What am I supposed to get from this book? And so um, one of the things we've been doing in this three-part series on judges is asking simply a different question. Instead of, am I, am I supposed to be like Samson or not? Like I would think of the parable, like the neighbor who asks for bread or not? Don't ask that question. We're asking a different question from this type of literature of Holy Scripture. What we've been asking each week is, what can we learn about God and about ourselves from stories like these? Real, messy, confusing, back and forth stories like these because I'll tell you guys one thing if you've been here for the ones of Deborah and Gideon we're not going to tidy up with Samson like we get even wackier with Samson than any of the others yes but we're going to keep this question in mind as we read through this story now we're going to do something a little different often when we're unpacking a passage of scripture we are looking at the context and what was going on then and then we're applying it to our lives okay but these stories are a little different and I'm going to not assume that all of you read the three chapters that is the story of Samson. So we're going to kind of have a story time this morning in a Pillman paraphrase where I'm going to take us quickly through this story and we are going to keep our eye on what can I observe or learn about God and about myself or ourselves from a story like this. So weird, how did we get here in the first place? Remember, God had made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants to create a new nation. I will be your God, you will be my people. And very important to us still today. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the promise that came. Fast forward a little, God has rescued the Israelites, the nation of God, from slavery in Egypt, leads them through the desert, which is a talk for another day, and into a promised land, the land that these people have been promised, the land that is flowing with milk and honey and also happens to still be flowing with Canaanites at this time. These are people who are following other false gods. They are practicing ways that are against the way of Yahweh God, God's way of justice and mercy. There's things like child sacrifice and wild revenge and things that are not reflecting the way of God. Remember, the people of God, the Israel, Israelites are supposed to reflect the character of God to the world around them. So there starts to be things about don't be influenced by their ways. Do not follow their gods. Do not worship their gods. Do not follow their practices. Do not intermarry or you might be tempted to have more than one God that you are worshiping. One of these groups that the Israelites are supposed to be set apart from are the Philistines and they are another major player in our story of Samson today. Now, remember within this story of Judges, again and again, on purpose, we're supposed to see this same wheel that we've talked about, the nations of Israel sins, and they therefore uh, feel the oppression of an enemy nation, this time the Philistines. They repent and call out to God. We're in really bad shape, God, help us. God brings deliverance through a judge in this period of time who acts kind of like a tribal, uh, nation tribal leader, kind of like 
like a military uh, leader of sorts, um, more so than like a courtroom judge. So deliverance comes as the Holy Spirit of God is placed for that deliverance moment upon a person chosen by God, the judge, and then the nation experiences peace for a period of time. And then the cycle begins again, and the book says time and time again, and then they sinned in the eyes of God, and they suffered under the next group of people. Okay, so this is the cycle that we are meant to see. If you read the whole book through, it's, it's incredibly repetitive. So the story, this last judge of Samson's story starts like all the others in chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And as readers of this story, in hindsight, we're supposed to see, I know how this cycle goes, here we go again, but at this point we can see this cyclical nature. And so uh, the, next, the next verses we hear that an angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mom, who is an unnamed woman that we've just met um, in this passage, and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to the God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Okay, so this is a pre-birth promise to a barren woman, Samson's mom, and we are told that he is to be set aside. Uh, set aside. And it's repeated later in verse 7, the boy will be a Nazarite from, of God from the womb until the day of his death. So this promise has been laid before um, mom and dad of Samson. Now, this Nazarite vow includes things which we'll get to in a second but this was a known thing we see it in uh numbers six one through six this is if you want to be uh take this vow the most famous Nazarite in case you're wondering it might sound a little familiar is John the Baptist you remember he eats just like wild honey and doesn't cut his hair and he's out preaching that the 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 one is coming make ready and all of that so he's a pretty famous one but back in numbers which is earlier in, in Holy Scripture, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, do these things. So this is a vow that you could make. Abstain from wine and other fermented drink. You have to let your hair grow long. No razor should touch it. And do not go near a dead body. So this is a special dedication to the Lord. And actually, some of the rules are stricter than those of the priests. If you're familiar with that section of Old Testament that talks about the priests and the systems and everything, this is even stricter. And you keep this vow for the duration of your dedication to the Lord. But we've already heard in this prophecy that Samson's vow was to be a lifelong dedication to the Lord all the way through life. And so we hear in chapter 13, 24, and fast forwarding a little bit, sure enough, baby comes, and he grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, in Samson. Now we're going to follow somewhat quickly the story of adult Samson in three movements, each associated with a woman. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that that is the part of one theme we get to know about Samson. Samson is somewhat driven by lust for women. And so his story is in three parts about who he's chasing after that day. So number one, uh, Samson went down to Timnah 
and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. So fast forward. That's how things worked then. And the parents... uh, organize such things but notice she's a Philistine woman and we know from other Old Testament scripture that that was not uh, God's will for the Israelite people but so his parents are like are you sure and he's like yes I'm sure no it's okay and we do that for a while so he goes to meet her and on the way to meet her a lion comes upon him he's alone and he kills the lion with his bare hands along the way we are now developing the theme of his incredible strength so he kills the lion goes and visits her, really likes her. She's the one. He goes back, and it's time to now go back again to actually marry her. And there is a beehive which has taken home in the carcass of the lion that he killed on his last trip down this path. And that looks super yummy, so he eats it, which might sound familiar as touching a dead thing and being really unclean and even ingesting something associated. Remember, in this case, unclean is ceremonial unclean. It's not about dirtiness. So this was a no-no for him as a Nazarite. He not only takes it himself, but he gives some to his parents without telling them where it came from, which is also a no-no because you've now made other people ceremonially unclean and they don't even know it. So we got a couple of big no-nos here. Okay, fast forward, not that much further. He holds a feast. Mind you, coming to this event is just Samson, mom, and dad. He has no Israelite friends of that are here with him. So the Philistines give him 30 companions, which is just a really interesting social situation in my mind anyway, but that's okay. We don't need to go into that right now. But he's given 30 Philistine men as companions. And so he makes a bet with them. He says... Uh, If you can solve this riddle, I'll give you some garments of clothes or something. And if you can't, I get something. A really weird way to make new friends, in my opinion. So he starts right out with this bet. But the trick is, his riddle has to do with the fact that he just killed a lion and ate honey in it. A fact that nobody but him could know. So he's made this riddle that nobody would be able to solve. So... The bet period of time is coming to his end, and his betrothed comes to him, just sobbing. He's, she's being pressured by the others, her Philistine uh, brothers there, uh, not literal brothers, the people in her, in her community, to say, find the answer. Why can't you find the answer for us? So she literally has spent the week of their feast sobbing about this. So finally he gives in and he tells her the answer to the riddle. And she goes and she tells the Philistines, they give the answer, they win, he's mad. And he says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Which means if you hadn't been hanging out with my cow, you wouldn't have known the answer. Okay, that's true. That's not a nice way to say it. It wasn't then, and it's not now. So we can kind of see how Samson's treating women, okay? We get the right idea if you hear that the way it sounds. But then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Okay. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. That was the, like, if you win, I'll give you the garments thing. So he beats people up and takes their garments to give it to the people. Burning with anger, he returns to his father's home. His father-in-law thinks, he's gone. That didn't work out. He's mad. Bye-bye. And so he gives the bride to one of the 30 companions. Samson cools down. 
We have a little bit of a hothead theme going on here. You're right if you picked up on that. He cools down, he returns, says, hey, where's my bride? And they're like, she's married to somebody else because you left, remember? And he's super mad about that. And so he burns the village by tying torches to foxtails and spreading them through the fields, right? He's very, very mad. And what does he say in 15:7? He says to them, since you've acted like this, I swear I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And then he goes and he hides in a cave. Isn't story time at church interesting? We don't usually do this, but we're just doing this. Samson's a really interesting person. So the Philistines go after him, and this is the first time we hear of another Israelite in this story. Do you guys remember in the other stories of the judges? The judges need to get the courage, and then they rally the Israelites, and they go and fight the enemy. Samson's done none of that. The first time we see an engagement with the Israelites is now. Samson is in a cage hiding right now and the um, Philistines come up to the Israelites and the Israelites are scared to death of the Philistines, right? It's like, why have you come to attack us? And the Philistines are like, we just want to go after Samson. And the Israelites are like, we'll go get him for you. And so they go to Samson and they're like, what are you doing? Just give yourself up. And so Samson agrees, if you don't kill me, Israelites, then you can tie me up and give me over to them, and that is what they do. And then 14b, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, Samson again. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax. The bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men, and he led the Israelites for 20 years. Again, the book of Judges, right? Uh, One quick note, you guys. Hyperbole in ancient historical texts is totally acceptable. It's not like a news report. If somebody uses hyperbole, that would not be okay. But it would be more like how you would understand if I said, I have a thousand errands to do today. You would not call me a liar. Hyperbole is okay. We don't know. They're not always reporting on the exact number. What this is saying, Samson goes and kills a ton of people using only a bone as his weapon. This is to emphasize again that theme of his amazing strength. Woman two, much faster. He goes to visit a prostitute back in the land of the Philistines. We've had this 20-year period somewhere. I don't know where this happens in that. He goes to visit a prostitute, and they know that he's there, and he has a legend of being so strong and still being their enemy. Remember, he got away. So they make a trap to go and get him when he comes out in the morning, but he sneaks out in the middle of the night, and he rips out the town gate. That's that. That's all I have to say about that. That's woman number two. I think we are again emphasizing we're driven by lust and we're super duper strong. So now we go to the third woman, the only woman in this story who's named, and her name is Delilah. In chapter 16, verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. I think that sounds suspicious coming from your wife. But that is what she says to him. And so she says to him, this is a pattern, okay, ready? This is the conversation that becomes cyclical in their relationship. She says, if you love me, tell me the secret of your strength. And he makes up a story. If you have this special kind of rope, then I become super duper weak. And she goes and tells the enemies, the ruler of the Philistines, who do the made up thing to him while he sleeps. He wakes up. He was lying anyway. He busts through the vines, and then she gets mad at him for lying. 
and says, if you loved me, and the whole thing happens again and again. We do that three times. You guys, if anyone in your sphere were recounting this conversation or this situation with you, the word toxic would come up at least 45 times in your conversation. I don't even know what to do with this, but Finally, 16, 16, chapter 16, verse 16, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so he tells her, my strength is because of this vow. No razor has ever touched my hair. And so sure enough, they cut his hair when he's sleeping and he goes and they bind him and he goes to get loose and he cannot. The vow has been broken. His strength has left him. He cannot break free and he becomes a prisoner and they gouge out his eyes, and they tie him up, and they think it is great fun that he has no more eyes and no more strength. And so we get to this portion that Aaron read today, and they are using this defeat of theirs for entertainment. And so they have him tied between two, or tied up, he's between two pillars. He asks to lean as 3,000 of them look on, And then the portion that we read this morning, Samson, now you have to see him, now he is weak, he's got a shaved head, and his eyes are gouged out. And he prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, please God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so this portion that we read earlier, he prays once more, and the strength returns to him one more time. He pulls down both the pillars, killing himself and 3,000 Philistines with him. And that is the end of the story of the judge of Samson. So again, what in the world do we do with these historical stories? First of all, we remember a few things. These are not direct instruction about right living. We just came from the book of Ephesians, right? We, we could look at a passage and say, what do I do in light of this instruction on good living in our way of together and the way of Jesus? This is, this, we operate very differently with these stories. They're not instructions about right living. They are also not a puzzle to unlock some secret meaning behind the lion or the jawbone or something. It's not like a secret puzzle to get into. We place each of these stories in their full strange twists into the larger picture of the relationship between God and the people of God. And a broader image starts to appear. That's why we try to build on these week by week, not just take one week apart from the others. This week, I had um, some time on Friday and I went down and I saw the Van Gogh exhibit at the Art Institute. Highly recommended. If you haven't been, it was lovely. And walked through not only that, but then the Impressionist wing as well. And of course, I thought of this because when I was getting up close to the paintings, you guys know what I'm going to say. It looks a bit messy. It's like a couple of funny strokes and a place and you're like, what? And then you back up and this full, beautiful picture emerges and you can see a story like Samson or Gideon or Deborah and all of that. You have to look at it close up. Yes, do that, but also back up or it can just look like a mess. But when you back up, you start to look again at our question. What can we learn about God and about ourselves from stories like these? God's spirit is doing the delivering of the people of God. It does not mean God endorses all of the actions of the people on whom the spirit is resting. I've been reading this book, Art and Faith by Makoto Fujimura. And uh, back to my art pondering for a moment. I don't know, it both happened in a week. But I loved this quote that he said, what if the entire Bible is a work of art rather than the dictates of predetermined checkboxes for us to get on God's good side? 
What if we are to sing back in response to the voice of eternity echoing through our broken lives? And that one struck me with Samson because I see a lot of brokenness in this life and yet God is working through the spirit of God, working even in broken, messy people, even in some poor shifting motives. Did you guys notice that even that prayer that he cries out at the end was still for personal revenge? It wasn't even like, please, one more time, God, so that I can save the Israelites. It was like, I want revenge for my two eyes. Like there was even still a motive that was not pure, but God still can work through broken people and broken motives to fulfill God's purposes and God's promises. Is this God's desired way to lead the people of God? I mean, we haven't gotten that far in the story yet, but we see in the continuing arc of scripture, remember where we are in Judges, we're at the point where it was still being said, in those days, the Israelites had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So was this the desired way? No, we're not done on the path of how God interjects and engages with the people of God. Thank God this is not how it stays and that we do not still live in the era of the judges, but this was an era and God is trying to lead a wayward people with a cycle of rescue and undeserved grace by using the very same broken people in their midst, but empowering them by the Holy Spirit to enact God's rescue plan again and again for God's purposes and for God's plans, God can use broken people to fulfill God's promises. So consider the story of Samson in a nutshell. He does everything wrong. He's a Nazarite who defiles himself by eating honey from a carcass, an Israelite who insists on a Philistine wife. God's spirit comes upon him repeatedly, but he's extraordinarily willful despite that. We do not see him ever really... Um, submitting to the way of God. He's, he's an incredibly willful person. He's led mainly by sexual lust and a lethal regard for his honor above all else. He hardly seems concerned at all whether or not the Israelites are free of the Philistines. It's a personal revenge that seems to be motivating him. And we know at the end of the story, you guys, the Philistines aren't gone. So even that last moment, while it made a dent perhaps in their enemy, it certainly did not change that they were a very strong enemy to the Israelites. So there is no peace peaceful formula to the end of this account. And that can make it really hard to read Old Testament stories sometimes. You're unsettled still at the end. But what do we think about this? Well, some commentators say the story of Samson in some ways is like a little mini version of the story of the Israelites overall. He compromises his holy calling. They've all been called to be a holy nation, but we're still doing that cycle again and again. He blunders around. He's in difficult situations. He keeps getting rescued by God, but then he presumes on God. He seems to be deserted, but God always comes through. He's a mini version of the cycle that happens that we see again and again in this time between God and the people of God. And what do I think about this? I don't think we're supposed to feel good about Samson. I think we're supposed to feel really, really, really good about our God. And I think that that's the thing, as unpeaceful and as unsettling as the story is, I think that's where we land when we're reading the story about Samson. 
And so what I've been doing in these last few weeks with the book of Judges, rather than giving some application or exhortation, instead I've been offering to you all some observations while I've been sitting in the discomfort of these violent, strange stories. I try to find what do I observe and I just hand those to you guys to consider. And also to say, I'd love to hear what you from you what you all observe in these strange stories that are beautiful and very holy and important and strange. So we're going to wrestle with this text on their own term. And I submit to you three things for you to consider that I observe. Number one, we already touched on. I think that this is a a pretty um, common one. I think the veggie tales even agree. Uh, God can and will use even broken people for God's purposes and for God's promises to come to fruition. We notice once again, as with Gideon last week, that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, in that hall of fame of faith, the list of people who had faith and assurance of things unseen, Samson makes that list. And one of the Old Testament scholars who I really appreciate, his name is John Golden Gay, he says this, that always excites me, because if there's room for Samson in the New Testament list of the heroes of faith, there surely is room for me. I agree with John Golden Gay on that. There's something reassuring to say that. In a devotional that I was reading this week, they, it, that Hebrews 1 came up, Hebrews 1.1, and the question in the devotional prompted me, am I convinced that God will do what God says and promise that he will do? And I think that Samson was. Uh, Samson was. Samson was confident that God would do what he said he would do through Samson as was reported to his mom and dad and told to him all of growing up. He was confident for all his faults. He believed what God promised for his life and his purpose. And God can do those things even through broken people. So that's the first observation. The second thing I want to just point out to you guys, and this isn't like directly from this, but I just think it's important for us in our own learning of how to engage with the Lord in our own faith walks. There's something to point out. There can be natural consequences to our choices. We may be forgiven by God. We may be standing holy, righteous, and redeemed again because of the grace given to us by Jesus after we have made a poor choice. And there still can be natural consequences of that choice that impact our life. I say that to you in case in the aftermath of a choice and a repentance and knowing that I've been forgiven, but I still have such a fractured relationship here. Don't take that as a lack of grace, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of your standing before God. The truth is our choices have natural consequences. For Samson, that meant the loss of his eyes and the binding of his body. There were natural consequences to what he did, even if God used him again. That sign of something still being off in this story of the here and not yet when something's still off is the aftermath of our choices and you have already asked forgiveness don't take that as a sign of the loss of God's favor over you we still live in a place where there are natural consequences sometimes to our choices and so I just want to make sure that there's no lie out there that that would mean that like maybe some way you aren't forgiven or something no that sometimes there are natural consequences that still exist even when you have been set free from your choice. The number three thing that I want to observe, the last one that I just want to give to you is the observation that I was actually very humbled when I was considering this part of Samson's story because I want to judge Samson. I'm going to be like, you were given everything. You were making awful choices. How could you do that? How could you use God in certain moments and just be off doing your own thing? You were given everything. 
But the truth is what I see in him, I've been prone to do before. And maybe you have too. It's compartmentalized engagement with God, right? A conviction of convenience. In this space, this is really easy to live out to walk the walk, to talk the talk. But in this space, there's this little pocket where it's not as easy and it's not as convenient and I'm gonna think about that later on Sunday maybe. I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I've made it up in my own line. This time when I thought that I could like uh, trick grace you know, like knowingly trick grace and just, I'll just, I'll be sorry for that tomorrow kind of a thing. And you can't trick grace. God's grace was over my tricking of grace, if that makes sense. It'll only make sense maybe to those of you who have tried that trick. Doesn't work. Um, There's grace over all of it. But this is what I see in him. I see in him a recognition that sometimes we compartmentalize when engagement with God is easier than others. When we can call on God when we need something really big and right now, but then we aren't living it out when we're eating the wild honey from the carcass on the path because the wild honey looks super duper delicious. And so we can set aside what is not convenient in that moment. What I want to offer to you is not in any way a guilt trip, you guys. It's a reminder that even stories like Samson, as much as we want to just look at him and be like, what were you thinking? We can look at those and say, thank God for what God was thinking. Because the story of God again and again is one of reckless pursuit of reckless reconciled relationship with the humans, us, them, who are so dearly loved. And God will go to no ends to make sure that we are pursued and all we need to be able to do is turn. And let's let Samson be a little reminder that um, even even a faith that can be um, a little compartmentalized or not always so lovely. God can do great things through that. And so let us look at that and say, how can we respond in a way that allows those compartments to fall down and trust God with more and more of our life? Um, God, we, we love you and we thank you for the fullness of Holy Scripture for all the nuance that um, we don't understand, that I don't understand, the language nuance that I'm sure I just missed um, as an English speaker in ancient Hebrew texts. Um, God, we just ask your grace over all of it. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us and that you long to be forming us through story, through relationship with your son and with each other. And we just say, just to have your way in what you have for us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.